This episode is sponsored by Morgan Stanley. It's one of the biggest environmental problems of our time, and it's getting worse every day. Plastic, a lot of it. In season one of At Scale, a sustainability podcast, Morgan Stanley looks at the most critical plastic waste challenges and innovative solutions for a more sustainable future. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And this episode is also sponsored by Villanova University's Sustainable Engineering Graduate Program. Gain tangible takeaways and sustainable business best practices that you can immediately apply to your organization. Offered online and on campus. Visit vusustainableengineering.com. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCowry here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how BlackRock views the future of ESG, CalPERS invests in inclusive capitalism, getting consumers to choose to reuse, and what CFOs think about sustainability-linked loans. We're in the money this week on 350. It's April 23rd, 2021, Earth Day week. This Earth Day edition of Green Biz 350. Actually, a very busy week. We'll get to that. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, where every day is Earth Day, it's Green Viz <laughs> Vice President and Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Greetings, Joel. Earth Day. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> or as we call it at Green Biz, Thursday. Yeah, exactly. How many times do we use that joke? <laughs> Oh, uh, almost every year. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it's a good one. I mean, the point is that Earth Day for us at Green Biz is just another day at the office or on Zoom or wherever the mm-hmm. heck we are these days. Mm-hmm. Um, because we don't single that out. Everybody else, it seems, does by virtue of uh, uh, if if inboxes could bulge, mine definitely would be stretching its to its limits. Uh, just uh, all these interesting announcements and and everybody particularly a lot of smaller businesses trying to find a hook in as we call it in journalism in in earth day in other words what what can we attach uh, what are we doing that we could attach to earth day and there's a lot of stretching going on there mm-hmm. a whole lot of uh, you know trying desperate need <laughs> attempts to find some connection to what we're doing with Earth Day. Uh, there, there's some that are humorous. I don't want to make fun of these, you know, obviously well-intentioned people who are trying to do their part, but it, it, it does reach the point of absurdity at some point. I'm sure you're seeing a lot of that. Yeah, and I actually had a conversation with a PR person yesterday about, about this week, rather, about this, and uh <laughs> And I, I kind of say, I chastise them a little bit. I said, do you realize that I have received probably hundreds of emails related to Earth Day already? And she said, I know, I know. And she said, it's kind of like a forcing function for companies. They try to do this. And, and of course, they're all shooting to this day. And then, of course, all the marketing comes out around this day. I, You know, I, I mean, in all seriousness, I... Um, 
try to look at them carefully when they come in, even the ones that seem to be a little bit silly, because there are some gems in there. And, you know, I have actually filed a bunch away for follow-up later. I just said, listen, you know, you just, we just can't, this is not that time sensitive. You're announcing on Earth Day, but it's really not that time sensitive. And it's, it's actually important and we'll follow up later, you know? So I've, I've sent that note out a bunch of times and I just wish companies would realize that this needs to be a year round activity. And just, you know, I mean, I love Earth Day in its original spirit, which was getting people behind this movement. And not that people aren't now, but I feel like we've kind of already hit that tipping point and let's make it about something different. Like, like the climate summits this week, um, kind of brought us to a new level of discussion around this. And I'm really glad that was happening and we'll have more analysis of that, you know, in the, in the days to come. Um, but I don't know enough already. Yeah. I mean, the, the climate summit that uh, president Biden is holding, um, is happening pretty much after we are recording this, uh, our weekly recording session for this, uh, episode of green biz 350. Uh, we've, uh, seen some, contours of, of what's being proposed obviously we don't know what's actually going to happen if anything it's hard to tell if this is uh, you know substantive or, or kind of uh, just for show uh but we will we will get to that uh probably uh, next week or as you said in the coming days but let's step back for a second and do the weekend review I'll get us started with a story that came through you, Joel. Why corporate reporting isn't a proxy for progress? It's uh, by Ken Pucker, who's with uh, has holds a number of roles among other things. He is teaching at Tufts and uh, Boston University, which I found intriguing. But uh, the, the thesis has to do with uh, something that we've talked about before, which which is just because you're reporting and disclosing. Uh, as a company, doesn't mean you're actually doing the things that you should be. And um, and with all of the focus and, and, and sort of gnashing of teeth that we have constantly about, oh, this framework and that framework, and it's so hard and so forth. And I, again, I don't mean to be belittling that because it's a really important function. However, maybe it's taking the eye off of what we really need to be focusing on, which is actually working on the things that we want to be working on uh, as a collective. So Joel, I'd love your your thoughts to start on this on this piece. Yeah, well, this came out of a piece that um, Ken Pucker wrote for Harvard Business Review. It's in the May-June issue. It called Overselling Sustainability Reporting with the subtitle, We're Confusing Output with Impact. Uh, mm-hmm. And I asked Ken if, if we could create an ad- adapted, shorter version of that for Green Biz, which he graciously did. I mean, this is really, uh, as you said, an, uh, an age-old question, and at least in, in our world, in terms of, you know, is re- first of all, reporting is is the sole job of, of a number of, of our listeners out there, a number of sustainability professionals on the corporate side. That's what they do. They spend much of the year working on their report, gathering data, uh, confirming data, um, putting it together in some digestible form, writing around that, getting all the sign-offs and, of course, all the production of you know, graphic design. I mean, it's a, it's a very big undertaking. And for what? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, is, first of all, does anyone read them? Uh, and second of all, uh, you know, what does it actually do in the world? And, you know, Pucker makes a, a really interesting case here that, uh, you know, this is, 
not really helping all that much and it's not really helping um, you know move the needle on all of these things that uh, we get so focused on the numbers so and look you know all these net zero commitments and all these other commitments that we report on year in and year out are important things to do absolutely and there's no no one saying otherwise uh, but you know it the, the idea that he is that this was there's supposed to be a sort of virtuous circle or chain reaction here where you know when, as companies measured and reported their uh, their social and environmental footprint um, that they would improve because as you know what gets measured gets managed and uh, and then others would would make a correlation between companies with better sustainability records and actual profitability which would you know therefore increasing equity returns for shareholders and and that um, uh, companies and and consumers as well would reward those companies that had good records and put pressure on those that don't um, and then it's it, that would in turn put pressure to you know, continue to measure and report social and environmental impacts in a more rigorous accurate and you know accepted way and the question is is that really happening and, and he says no it hasn't really come to pass and so at Greenfin last week, we had a, a session on his, his corporate reporting still still needed. And I didn't I wasn't able to attend that. I was doing other things, but it, I did see that it was one of the most popular uh, sessions we had last week. And I think it's, this is clearly a question that people who do sustainability reports and maybe the people above them even are starting to ask. And I think that's a healthy thing. You know what we I in my personal view, the holy grail is here is for when this becomes real time, for when these reporting mechanisms are actually built into the dashboards that companies use to manage their entire operational footprint. Um, and that's going to take a lot of technology investments that we don't have. There are some tools that are starting to come into place, carbon accounting systems and, and greenhouse counting systems that are be focusing on this more in real time. But for me, un until that happens, like until that that data is kind of like in people's faces every day. Um, that's that's kind of when we'll I think we'll we'll see the like the alignment of of the the reporting and the action, the impact, if you will. That's just my little technology centric view of the world. But you know, I, I'd love I'd love for that day to come. Yeah, well, it's already coming in a certain way, Heather. I mean, one of the things that's been shifting little by little, but it's still not the mainstream, is that you know most companies see issuing a corporate sustainability or corporate responsibility report, they go by different names, as the end of a process. All right, we've been working on this for months. It's been released on Earth Day or whatever. And now, you know, check that box out. We can move on to something else. As opposed to looking at the publication of a sustainability report as the beginning of a process. Okay, we've done the report. Now, what did it say? What did we learn? Where did we not have data? Where did we, you know, where are we not making progress? How do we uh, create a strategy around that? How do we, you know, implement that and, and, and just up our game? Uh, that's, I think, one of the interesting, you know, sort of parts of this that just hasn't really caught on at least as much as it could. So there is a great need to question these. Uh, oh, and the other piece of it is the technology stuff, as you, as you mentioned. You know, some of that's happening now, but not necessarily in the way that you were describing, because uh, we did a piece on this in the uh, State of Green Business report 
I think it was this year. It might have been last. I actually think time, it was last year, the bot one, Last right? year in 2020. And we had a session on it last week, again, at Greenfin 21, uh, about called the bots are coming. The bots as in those uh, bots that crawl the web and, and look at information and for indexing and a number of things. And what those bots are, able, are doing right now uh, on behalf of investors, particularly large institutional investors, is looking at subtle changes to corporate reports year over year. In other words, if a company changes uh, wording from should to will or may to will or something like that, you and I may not see that. I mean, if we even bother to read it, even we may not see that, uh, certainly the change, because uh, we'd have to remember what happened last year. Well, the bots are much smarter than us in that regard. And it can look and see and flag those things and, and, and make some assessment out of that. It also can look at subtle changes in, in um, language to see if uh, maybe companies are used to be bullish on something and now they're stepping back. And that's important to know. So corporate reporting is ripe for disruption. And um, we will uh, see how that's working so uh, I love this piece. I think it's really anybody working in a company who does has anything to do with reporting, or even if you don't, it's 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 just a good read. Both our version and the longer piece that's in uh, HBR Harvard Business Review. But um, let's talk about a piece that you wrote, Heather, on green hydrogen and electrification. This was a week. This was electrification week at GreenBiz. All of mm -hmm. our newsletters, the seven newsletters. Are all uh, all looked at some aspect of uh, electrification, the process of you know taking things that hadn't been run on electricity, that had been run on fossil fuels primarily, from buildings to manufacturing processes, obviously vehicles, and and this goal to uh, electrify them at the same time we decarbonize the grid so that there, things are running off of renewable energy. That's the way we're going to get to our carbon reduction goals. Um, but hydrogen, Heather. <laughs> Hydrogen, Heather. Yeah. So this this piece was inspired by uh, a funding announcement. Actually, the, the the so many funding announcements for climate tech startups right now. This one was for a organization called Syzygy Plasmonics. They're in Houston, and their focus is on using a different process, using light to trigger um, reactions uh, when using chemical production. So instead of using some process that is is powered by uh, heat and and probably pro probably powered by heat generated by natural gas this company is working on uh, photo photocatalytic reactions and how how that can be used in, in chemical production so that's that was sort of the if, if original catalyst for the story if you will but the, the 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 hydrogen link is that one of the first things that this organization is focusing on is hydrogen production in and you know in, in turning the process of um, getting this stuff out there for transportation needs, probably for fuel cells and for other purposes, um, and getting it to be more um, green. Now, the link here with electrification is as technologies like this come out, the production of chemicals, petrochemicals, um, fertilizer, and so forth, has a potential to be less carbon intensive, which in turn allows it to be potential, more potentially renew, uh, powered by renewable energy. So it's kind of one of these like 
virtuous cycle things that needs to happen. This efficiency, these efficiency innovations need to happen on the production side, on the on the manufacturing side, in order for the system to be electrified in a in a broader way. Um, I I am absolutely not an expert on hydrogen, but I am more and more fascinated um, the more I read about what's going on because hydrogen, um, as we've reported recently as well, uh, is could be green hydrogen could be crucial to the production of steel in a much more green way. So there's just a lot of, um, you know, not only is this, this particular substance, a, a catalyst for other processes, but it, it could also be uh, a fuel in itself. So it's just one of those like dream scenarios. When people talk about the, the, the market being, I think like 250, uh, 250 billion by 2030, but two hundred 200 billion, uh, by 2025, which is just, you know, four, four or five years from now. Um, so big, big market, um, lots going on. And that's, you know, I'm not, not sure where I'm going to land on this ultimately, but it's, it's a fascinating topic. Fascinating. And, you know, a dream scenario, but this is a dream that's been around for a long time. I would say that this yep. night, this dreaming night began a couple <laughs> decades ago. I mean, I, uh, in, a, a, I want to say 1999 or 2000, I was in uh, Japan at uh, Honda's R&D facility and driving a hydrogen car, not very far, not very fast, but it was, you know, showing it was a real car that had uh, um, real, uh, you know, looked and drove pretty normally. Um, and this has been around for a while, and, and, and GM had uh, had a hydrogen car for a while. Uh, I, I feel like, you know, we've seen this movie before, this, uh, you know, that hydrogen is uh, a fuel of the future and always will be. Uh, so the question is, is is this different? Well, right so now? yeah, actually, it is a little bit different. So there's two things I want to just push back on. One is I totally agree with you on electric passenger vehicles, like passenger vehicles, and and I'm making them more efficient. But we are seeing like Plug Power is what was one of these companies that that does these um, vehicles that are behind the scenes in warehouses, and it's it's a huge it's. It's a really fascinating Fork, company. Forklifts and things Fork like that. Forklifts and and, yeah. and and other things. So there's a there's a whole category of electric vehicles that um, could benefit from the the density of the fuel cells and like for for quick quicker changeovers for um, for the energy storage kind of capacity that they have. So that's one thing. The other thing is that like um, it is becoming the 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 whole idea of what's happening right now with some of these production methods is that they could be distributed and decentralized. So right now the hydrogen production model is very centralized as is chemical manufacturing. Like you have to do it in certain places and the, you need the pipelines, you have to get the, or you have to liquefy it so you can put it in trucks. And I mean, there's just a whole transportation, um, uh, component to it that makes things very difficult. But if you have these smaller reactors, like what Syzygy is working on, you could decentralize some of these things. And you could, for example, put one of these facilities, like say at a wind farm where it's going to potentially, I don't know, it could be paired with hydrogen fuel cells. It could be powered up, you know, when that, when there's too much power on the grid, um, and sort of to, to help balance the supply and demand, um, you could use those fuel cells, you know, so you could, you wouldn't have to get those things moved around. Um, you could, you could just have, it's just a different model. So I don't know. I mean, it's, I think that plus the the renewable energy um, being sort of having hit, hit its tipping point might be just the things we need here. So, and there is some more attention to uh, R and D 
a lot in, in Europe, like Europe is really focused on this. They have hubs that they're building around this and so forth. So I don't know, two decades or so of, of wanting and wishing and dreaming. Um, but there, there seem to be some different things happening now. Well, speaking of different things happening now and tipping points and long time coming, uh, we have a third piece that uh, came out of Greenfin uh, last week um, uh, about, uh, well, the, the session at, at Greenfin was called The Investor View on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and brought together a really interesting group of people, Elisa Hales uh, from Trillium Asset Management, Marvin Owens, who's the Chief Engagement Officer at uh, Impact Shares, and uh, Renee Manley, who's uh, with the Service Employees International Union, SEIU, and a board member of something called the 30% Coalition, moderated by our good friend Eric, uh, Erica Karp. A really interesting session uh, looking at what is why should investors um, be concerned uh, about diversity, equity, inclusion? And, and this piece, it was written by Antonio Pequeño IV, uh, and you can talk about how we came to know Antonio, uh, gets into this really interesting uh, take on, on this and just, you know, reporting about kind of what happened in that session and, uh, and again, sharing it for those who weren't able to be there. So I'll tell a moment about Antonio. Antonio is with USC. He is a journalism student who um, is, is focusing on business journalism. And he, uh, I worked with a class at USC to have a number of them write about the Greenfin Summit. And I have to say, I mean, this he did a terrific job with the story. Thank you, Antonio. Um, and, uh, and we've got some other pieces that are coming as well. So for me, the, the sort of big aha and takeaway for this is if you as a investment firm or bank or whoever are making all of these decisions about sustainable finance, right? And, and there's, as we know, there are plenty of pledges about tr billions and trillions now of dollars that, that banks are committing to uh, investing in development, resilience schemes, uh, uh, you know, systems, uh, diverse businesses, anything that, that, that could possibly support the sustainable development goals. So a lot of them are linked to that. Um, yet these same companies, um, if they look within, don't have very diverse management. Um, and so the sort of one of the theses, theses, if you will, that was explored during this is, is if you, if you yourselves don't have a diverse management team, how can you possibly make, uh, the right decisions for, individuals that you're trying to support. Like, so like these are great pledges and so forth, but look within, look, look to your own ranks and understand, you know, do you have the right people focused on these decisions? What, what do these people look like? Do they reflect America? You know, does this, this team that you have within reflect America? And one of the interesting threads that was discussed during the session was the, um, uh, uh BlackRock has just agreed to, uh, basically a, an audit, a third-party racial equity audit. Um, and it's, I think it's the only one so far of the major organizations that have been requested. Like uh, I know that some of the others, like uh, I think JP Morgan, and I, I don't want to totally misspeak. I, you know, I should probably not mention one without mentioning the others, but enough, let's just say six or seven of the biggest financial services organizations in the country have been asked to to commit to, to something similar, and they've, they've declined. Um, and, and Service Employees International Union, SEIU, is, is one of the organizations that was behind that, that ask um, 
so that was sort of the thread that was that was dominant in the discussion. Were you were you at that one? I know I was. So I yeah, I, I, I popped in and out of a bunch of sessions uh, during that day. I wasn't able to attend much uh, front to back, but I, I am looking at uh, watching the, the 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 tapes of this, the recordings that we made of these uh, sessions. Uh, there's really two things going on here that I think are kind of interesting. One is is making sure that investors walk their talk. That, that you know people. Whether it's on carbon and not, you know, making sure that the carbon commitments you make as an investment firm aren't contravened in effect by the fossil fuel investments that may still be in your portfolio or in a legacy portfolio. Um, and so just making sure that, you know, again, these everyone, a lot of firms are making these commitments around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, but you know, who are they themselves? Are they themselves diverse and inclusive and equitable? But the other piece of it is it gets into the growing calls for companies to get more involved, more vocal, more of an advocacy kind of relationship with policymakers, you know, at the state, local, national, international level. And as uh, Trillium uh, talked about, Lisa Hales at Trillium talked about, uh, you know, they're being more activist in their investments and they're asking companies to be more vocal and more activist. And again, this goes to to walking the talk of the, of the companies that themselves are making DEI kinds of commitments, but may not necessarily have the proof points on that. So I guess, you know, so like so many things, we're seeing this with carbon now and net zero goals, uh, that companies are being in, held increasingly accountable by investors, but the investors are also being held increasingly accountable. So a whole lot of accountability going on. Uh, Hopefully that results in a whole lot of action and progress taking place. So Heather, you've queued up a number of of clips from last week's Greenfin conference, uh, uh, including ones from the session, the interview that I did uh, with BlackRock. Uh, Tell us what you've got and why you picked them. Indeed, I will. Plenty of uh, great material here. So I'll start with a highlight from the session titled Companies, Capitalism and the Vatican. Great, Mm. great title, by the way. (laughs) Uh, The speakers gave us uh, an inside peek into the Council for Inclusive Capitalism, which is a group of business and world leaders who basically have begun a movement that aims to create an economic system that is trusted, fair, responsible, dynamic, and sustainable. So that's their, their mandate, if you will. And in our first clip, we hear from one of the members of the council, Marcy Frost, the CEO of CalPERS, which, of course, is a California organization that represents more than, I think it's 1.6 million public sector employees. It's the largest uh, public pension firm in the United States, maybe in the world, of public employee pension funds. CalPERS is a force to be reckoned with in the investing world. So, yeah. Well, so here's Marcy Frost. CalPERS is really a universal owner with very long-term liabilities. And these liabilities represent people. We often get very technical about what we do, but a pension system is about providing security to people throughout their lifetimes. So we also have an expectation that this fund will grow uh, 7% per year. That's That's our growth assumption. 
And so we take on a significant amount of risk uh, with those return expectations and really much more so than any of our international partners. This is really unique within the United States uh, structure. Uh, so we think that there are significant risks uh, to the system, to our long-term sustainability as it relates to environmental, social, or governance types of factors. And so this, uh, you know, our being a part of this council, I, I think is extremely important. It's aligned uh, to mitigating these risks, uh, the utility that we believe that we have here at CalPERS. And this utility is about getting commitments. It's about getting metrics. It's about getting measurements because what actually gets measured will be managed over time. And these are companies, uh, my fellow council members are companies where CalPERS does place capital. We do invest uh, in those companies. And uh, to see that they have the same longer term view, I think they get, um, you know, there's a lot of accusations that companies are for the short term profits. They're not thinking about long term risks. They're not thinking about long term strategies. And when you're an asset owner like CalPERS and we're up around $450 billion as the markets have been really generous here uh, more recently over the last year, uh, we, we know that uh, these companies have to think longer term. They have to think about the risks related to their talent, how they manage human capital, how they take care of their people. They need to think about climate. Uh, they need to provide financial disclosures to asset owners. And I think public companies need to get much more comfortable with being more transparent. And what I'd like to see is more of this transparency benchmark that comes out of this work as well. The next highlight touches on similar themes, but it comes from a different panel that included the chief financial officers of Enel and Anheuser-Busch InBev. During the discussion, the speakers were asked to address the role that the sustainable development goals play in ESG. Here's Scott Mather, chief investment officer for U.S. Core Strategies at PIMCO, who was another participant. From our perspective, sustainability is at the highest level, and it's always worth remembering this. It's about making growth bigger than it would have been otherwise. It's about making it more inclusive and more resilient. And so it's good for business and it's good for investors. And that's why you know we've been very supportive of, of trying to advance the SDGs, especially as the global language of sustainability, and also the financial innovation that can come from that uh, in terms of issuers being able to one, you know, as been mentioned, really integrate sustainability into their value uh, proposition for all their stakeholders, right? So increasingly that matters. It matters for employees. It matters for customers. It certainly matters for investors more and more, I would say, for all of those stakeholders. So, but, but looking for a way to do that and also innovate in the financial marketplace. That's important to us too, because so many of our investors want to align their portfolios in a more sustainable way. And this presents an easier way, an easier approach uh, for them to, to do that. The next snippet comes from that same session, and it addresses one of the hottest trends in green finance today, sustainability-linked financing. Here's Alberto DiPaoli, Chief Financial Officer of Enel Group. Well, when we were at the table to, to, to try to invent this new instrument, we were discussing among us because uh, the very beginning, the only, only green bonds were present on the market. We found that we were a big issuer of green bonds. Uh, at the time in which we decided to change from uh, sustainability linked to projects uh, that are not so the core focus of, the of, of your company, to move in a full business uh, related to sustainability. We didn't find, find any kind of instrument in the market. 
So we decided to invent one that is a sustainability link bond. And uh, why it's so different and why we think uh, it will be the instrument that will open the sustainable finance to the market and will drive the transition. Because so uh, it's... Uh, it is linked to your strategy. You can, you can issue any sustainability link bond without having a full strategy into sustainability. While the green bonds allow you to, to, to issue instruments only if you do some projects, but you don't have your strategy in the sustainability. So the second is, I think, relevant is that everything we do in sustainability has to be a business. So if you issue sustainability green bond, we have to get a discount from the market. We don't have to pay more than a normal bond because it is not the way to impulse the sustainable finance, the sustainability and transition. Everything that has to have an economical sense. And green bond didn't have it because at the end, a green bond costs more than a normal bond. What we got and also Fernando, is a credible discount in, from the market. Why that? Because sustainable companies, real sustainable companies, are more profitable and less risky than normal companies. And this is a clear financial perspective. In this case, you can get a discount because you are offering the market these parameters that are relevant to price in a financial instrument. At the very beginning, it, we were alone. When for one year, we waited for others. Now the market is opening in a very, very incredible way. So today is expected that sustainable linked financing will go on 150 billion euros is the, the, the expectation. And also the sustainable linked loan now is boom, are booming and are becoming one of the most important instruments. This is driving the change. And the final pair of highlights comes from your compelling conversation with two executives from BlackRock, Jessica Tan, the global head of corporate strategy, and Mark Weedman, head of international and corporate strategy. Before I cue those uh, segments up, I'd love to hear your key takeaways from the panel, Joel. Yeah, thanks, Heather. Um, well, first of all, just the title of the session, A Conversation with BlackRock, sort of speaks to the weight that that uh, organization, mm -hmm. the largest institutional investor in the world, $8.7 trillion in under assets under management. It, the weight that that company uh, has in the sustainability space and certainly in the ESG and sustainable investing space, uh, I think most of our listeners know that Larry Fink, the CEO and chair of BlackRock, writes an annual letter that uh, comes out every January to CEOs of the companies in which they're invested, which is pretty much every publicly traded company. Uh, and increasingly over the past few years, uh, prodding them, pushing them to do more in sustainability and in, in hewing to the SASB Sustainable Accounting Standards Board's framework for disclosure, uh, participating in the t uh, Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, TCFD, as we <laughs> kids call it in the business, uh, and, and doing other things that, you know, frankly, investors hadn't necessarily been doing. And so BlackRock, by virtue of its size, its voice, and its leadership is, you know, in sort of put itself in the middle of the investing world as it relates to ESG and sustainability. So, you know, 
that goes to the title, just, you know, we want to hear from them. And everybody talks, he wants Larry Fink, and, and he's been doing some of the circuit, I guess, over the past uh, year or so at events. We went a different direction to get, uh, as you said, Mark Weedman and Jessica Tan, two of the corporate global strategy professionals at BlackRock to talk about where they see things, where th they think things are going, and, and what's next. So, what did you queue up for us, Heather? Well, first of all, they were terrific. <laughs> it was a wonderful session. So uh, we'll close with two different portions of audio. The first addresses Jessica and Mark's thoughts on what to expect and what to hope for from the Biden administration. And then we'll actually close out with their insights into how the COVID-19 pandemic contributed to the rapid acceleration of interest in ESG. Enjoy. I'm, I'm hopeful about the administration. Um, I think it's wonderful that there are explicit climate-related uh, policies. You know, in the American Jobs Plan, as those on this call will know, you know, one trillion out of the two is dedicated to moving climate forward, right? How do we shift from today to get to a net zero world by 2050? You know, so I'm hopeful about the policy around electric vehicles, charging stations, research, of course. You know, at the same time, what it also points out is, you know, I think the estimates currently are to transition from today to a net zero world by 2050. There's actually a $50 trillion investment need. So what that points to us is that there's still this large gap to get from here to there. And, um, and so I also think that there's a role for private sector. In fact, that's what clients want to talk to us all the time about, right? What is this investment opportunity um, as the world inevitably transitions? Um, I'm also hopeful beyond the infrastructure plan, all the things that Mark was talking about, right? If we actually get to a more globally consistent framework, um, you know, that's the real way we're going to see capital move to follow um, the investment needs because um, requirements will be clearer, um, you know, product labeling will be clearer, and, um, and that's how capital is going to move in, in masses. And Joel, can I add to that just a second about what we hope to see from the administration, um, building on what Jessica just said, a few, a few very specific things. The first is that we are uh, seeking um, uh, a single global standard for disclosures, especially around climate and carbon-related uh, issues uh, and emissions. So that is number one on our list. We want a single global standard. It's the top priority we get from CFOs and CEOs around the world and from asset managers that who are our clients. Um, can you give us one clear thing we're supposed to fill out? The second thing is that from the financial regulators as a set, including the banks, the bank regulators, they need to actually have consistency across securities and bank and insurance, ultimately insurance, although the federal government doesn't regulate insurance. The balance sheets and how those, uh, so we have similar accounting effectively across these. And then the last thing is importantly, we have to not forget about the private market. Uh, the private market, which is funded chiefly by banks, it is not large, we're, we're as a relatively small part of our, our business, is critically important to have the same level of disclosure. And the reason why, Joel, is the world doesn't get better if public companies dump dirty assets into private pools of capital, which then disappear from public disclosure. That does not make the world better, but it is what will be the outcome if we don't have consistency across the whole platform. Um, and then the last thing in terms of uh, actual economic policy, uh, we're extremely excited about the infrastructure uh, oriented climate pieces is getting us, getting the US moving in an area where we have chronically underinvested. But I think ultimately, without change in incentive structures for private actors, some form of pricing around carbon on a global basis, or at least among the developed countries, it's going to be difficult to trigger the capital shift of the scale that Jessica's talking about 
because if externalities aren't priced in, even good actors can reach challenging decisions between different stakeholders as opposed to aligning them under a clear incentive regime. So um, what we found in our survey when we talked to clients around the world is they had increased their interest in sustainable strategies over the past year. And remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of tut-tutting from critics of sustainable investing, basically saying like, your luxury times are over, people, uh, and you guys uh, should just give up on, on your dream and focus. Now, we, we can't afford these luxuries. And that's exactly the opposite of what actually happened. Clients around the world, and I mean around the world, in every single market, have moved sustainable investing to the number one or number two concern that they have on their priorities when they talk with us. And so why is that happening? Well, I think the first thing is these are trends that were already underway. We were already seeing big growth in 2018 and 2019. 2020 was a big step change, but it was a continuing a direction we already were seeing. But I think, and I, this may sound slightly mystical, Joel, but I think that the pandemic made everyone slightly more conscious that actually this is only one planet we live on and we are all far more vulnerable than we seem uh, or may think day to day. And so I actually, that consciousness uh, changed. It's a global problem, the pandemic. Well, many of the issues, particularly around climate change, are also global problems. And so I think that that helped. Um, and then this also helps. If you've invested in sustainable strategies in 2020 and you shorted traditional strategies, you made a bundle. So uh, that helps to get people's interest going as well. We just launched two strategies, uh, two products, which we think are super exciting, but they show bookends of where clients are. On the one end, uh, we just launched the biggest ETF. It's actually two ETFs together. They give you a low carbon transition path, and it's funded by a set of really big institutions, including CalSTRS in California, but also Tomasic, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, a pension plan in Finland, like a diverse group globally coming together and saying, we want to make a huge splash to attract other capital to accelerate that transition. That's really cool. That's on the ETF side. Way on the other side, we've just launched a our first venture equity, uh, venture capital and growth equity strategy period ever. And it's focused on decarbonization technologies. And that's also going to be in a joint venture with that sovereign wealth fund, Tomasic, which has put a commitment of putting many billions to work in this area. So why is that happening? And the answer is, People feel it aligns with their mission, but importantly, we really do think there's a lot of money to be made for clients that if they get ahead of these trends and they invest in them, that this trend of shift doesn't mean that every sustainable product is a good product. It means the trend is in the same way that in the 1980s, securitization and indexing were things that the earlier adopters actually managed to achieve their financial objectives faster than people who didn't. So if I could add one other thing, just in terms of the, the pandemic and why we think sustainability um, took off so much. In addition to all of these, um, you know, climate and kind of the pandemic seeming sort of existential, right? Well, first of all, there were these climate events all around the world that seem to be happening with more frequency, bushfires, you know, forest fires, Arctic fires, all of this. Um, and at the same time, I think the pandemic highlighted certain inequities that exist in the overall system. And so, you know, what we saw was a greater interest in social impact. Um, and so it highlighted the broader topic of, um, you know, ESG, which then, of course, relates back to um, climate in so many ways, and they're becoming so inextricably linked. So for all this almost like strange confluence of factors, that was 2020. Um, I would say, at least from my perspective, uh, interest in sustainability accelerated much faster than I'd anticipated at the beginning of the year. 
Well, thank you for those clips, Heather, and uh, more to come from uh, Greenfin 21. We'll be on posting a lot of these sessions, the videos uh, of many of these sessions on the site in the coming weeks. I'm Deanna Anderson, Senior Editor at GreenViz, and today I'm joined by Gary Cooper, Reapley Co-Founder and CEO. Hey, Gary. Hi, Deanna. Let's dive in. So I have some questions for you. Um, and the first one is for folks who are not familiar with Reapley, can you just give a quick summary about the work that your company does? Absolutely. So Reapley is a Chicago-based startup, and we build technology to help organizations scale reuse. That's kind of it. We help organizations create more circularity around their business, around their community, around their vendors and suppliers, all the material that moves around an organization. We help organize that, but we help organize that with an end goal of reuse. And uh, that's kind of all us in a nutshell. So Earth Day was yesterday. And for Reapley, that meant the launch of your reuse initiative. Um, can you tell me yeah. a bit about what the initiative is, what you're hoping to do with it? Absolutely. So the Reefly Reuse Initiative is just our simple way of trying to help everyone who's trying to be a little bit more sustainable, whether in their own lives or whether at their workplace, with what we think a central pillar of sustainability, reuse, and really understanding it and understanding how, one, how easy it is and two, how impactful it can be. And so with the Reuse Initiative, if people go to reapley.com forward slash reuse and just sign up, essentially what we're just challenging everyone to do is on Earth Day yesterday, but also throughout their lives, is just to reuse one item, right? So find something in your home or at your workplace or if you're a Reapley customer on our platform, but just to reuse one item. And when you do, um, take a quick picture or a video of that. If that's super cool, we would love to see it on any of the social channels. So you could add Reefly Inc. and hashtag that with hashtag reuse initiative or hashtag Reefly Earth Day. That's the ask just to reuse one thing and tell us about it on social media. And if you do that, Reefly is going to um, purchase um, one tree per post through the One Trillion Tree Project and Organization. So we're going to help Remove carbon for the air if you can just reuse one item. And so we're super excited about it. That sounds easy enough to do and to potentially have a large impact. Um, I'm curious if you can share, like, what is the exact impact that you hope that the initiative has um, more long-term beyond Earth Day? Yeah, yeah. So there, there's going to be so many things that we're thinking about, and this is where we, we're really going to ask kind of for, your, for the audience's help again. So as we start to see a lot of folks um, do, using the hashtag of reuse initiative or Reefly Earth Day on whatever social media platform, and we start to talk to the, the broader audience about how we can be helpful, that's where we're going to be taking our kind of um, cues about how we can continue this movement. Here's some things, though, I'll maybe say that we've been thinking through. So one of the things we've been thinking through is, like, can we – actually um, be making these donations to the One Tree and Tree project more frequently. Um, whether that be, you know, we have reuse days per month or whether we bring that into Reapley's platform so when our users reuse things, we actually purchase a tree on their behalf. So we love to hear from you about that. 
um, all the way to Reefy is considering having a reuse conference, right? So there are conferences that have talked about or do talk about recycling. There isn't really one for reuse. And so if that's something that you think would be super awesome, we love to lead it and, 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 and you know, corral the world leaders around reuse. And so those are one or two of the things that we're thinking about. But we're really just going to depend on what people tell us, what people show us um, during our reunification initiative and kind of take cues from there. Well, I'll definitely be keeping up with what you all do next. Um, I'm always excited to learn news about Reefly. Thanks for having me. Reuse. That's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish seven of them, and you can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to learn more about them. We welcome your comments, questions, and tips. Anything else you want to send our way, you can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by Morgan Stanley. It's one of the biggest environmental problems of our time, and it's getting worse every day. Plastic, a lot of it. In season one of At Scale, a sustainability podcast, Morgan Stanley looks at the most critical plastic waste challenges and innovative solutions for a more sustainable future. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And this episode is also sponsored by Villanova University's Sustainable Engineering Graduate Program. Gain tangible takeaways and sustainable business best practices that you can immediately apply to your organization. Offered online and on campus. Visit vusustainableengineering.com.